0: Ready? Okay. You are listening to America's Home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action. Here's Bill Hazen. <laughs> Most of us have seen the original movie, Dirty Harry. One of the most riveting scenes of the movie takes place in a foggy football stadium as Harry chases down Scorpio. That stadium is Kizar Stadium in its original glory. Remember that sweeping aerial image? It's unforgettable. And we're going to talk about some unforgettable San Francisco 49ers teams that played in there with author Mark. Jacobs. Down the coast, how are the Los Angeles Rams doing in their return season? SB Nation Joe McAtee checks in with the answer. It turns out that there really is something to that so-called home field advantage, but why? We'll find out from Jeremy Jameson, Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Rochester. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran tells us if the San Diego Chargers have simply run out of options and time. But first, the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff,
1: Well, you can expect a jam packed Yankee Stadium come next Mother's Day. May 17th is the date the Yankees will retire Derek Jeter's number two jersey. Jeter will also get a plaque in the famed Yankees Monument Park located beyond the outfield wall. Interesting to note, when Jeter's number two becomes extinct, it will mean all single digit Yankee uniform numbers are officially retired. Organizers of a new $1.9 billion football stadium in Las Vegas met for the first time this week. The Stadium Authority Board began picking staff members and setting bylaws on how they plan to operate. The big caveat, of course, is whether or not the Oakland Raiders are part of the equation. In the event the black and silver remains in Oakland or possibly Los Angeles, a scaled-down stadium would be built for the UNLV Running Rebels. A popular vendor at Philadelphia's Citizens Bank Ballpark has been fired from her position for supporting white nationalism. 26-year-old Emily Jokas, better known as the Pistachio Girl at Phillies Games, was employed by the vending company Aramark. She told other media outlets that she was let go because her White nationalist views did not reflect those of the Phillies. Yokas was famous for her rock and roll approach to hawking goods. A
0: cracker! A crack of jails, A penis, A
1: Yokas has worked at the Philly ballpark since 2009. And Atlanta Braves front office officials have begun moving into their new home, SunTrust Park. The new ballpark is about 87% complete. Much of the work now includes installing carpet, cabinets, and wood fixtures. The Braves' first home game is April 14th against the Padres bill that's the very latest
0: thanks jeff the rams are now in la and working their way through their inaugural return season and it's been a rough year or at least on the field and uh, perhaps to a degree at the gate we want to get an update on this from joe mackety the editor of turf show times the sb nation site that is your one-stop shop for all L.A. Rams information. Joe, I think we hit it right on the head. You've been watching some Rams football. And uh, what's the story about the Rams on the field and at the gate?
2: Yeah, great to be back. Thanks for, for having me again, Bill. Um, You know, I think the story's a bit unwritten. Obviously, the uh, the tenor has changed a bit over the last month. The Rams started out 3-1, and one and things were looking pretty good early on in the season, but they've won just one out of the last eight games. and uh, So now they're down to 4-8, and eight, and you couple that with the riff that head coach Jeff Fisher had with Rams legend Aaron Dickerson off the field, and, and those two things combined have certainly soured the mood. I think the question is, how did they finish? finish? finish this season. The news that Jeff Fisher has gotten a two-year extension after five years of losing football with the franchise certainly doesn't help. But I think the fact that it's the first year back in Los Angeles, there were some fans willing to offer him that kind of a window had the record been better to this point and had, I guess, the drama between he and Eric Dickerson not taken so much of the headlines over the last month. So we'll have to see how that really shakes out with three home games over these last four games and if it affects the uh, in-person crowd.
0: Dickerson has more his way into a talk show host position on a local L.A. radio station. Some people in our audience outside of the area may be scratching their heads a little bit and wondering, what does it matter what Eric Dickerson thinks? Why does that matter?
2: And the answer is because he's Eric Dickerson. He's just one of those franchise legends that holds a special place in Rams fans' hearts. Uh, A lot of Rams fans still feel that uh, he wasn't treated uh, the way he should have been back when he was a player after coming out of SMU. Um, And because of the records he put up and some of the playoff success he had, and the fact that he stayed in Los Angeles, he really became uh, not just a Rams legend, but a Los Angeles Rams legend. And so a lot of the local fan base that stuck with the Rams through the move to St. Louis and obviously uh, had that fandom renewed now that the team has uh, returned really feel that this was a line that couldn't be crossed and definitely couldn't be crossed by Jeff Fisher, somebody, despite his past in the area, isn't as seen as much of a Los Angeles sports figure as Eric Dickerson is. So it's a bit as if you've got a hometown guy coupled with his record with the team. Those two things, he's just not the guy that you want on the wrong side of things. And for Fisher to come and kind of burn those bridges in year one just isn't a great look regardless.
0: Well, with this as a back drop, the new Cronkey world as we have called it here. The groundbreaking on that has taken place. You've been there. You've reported on this. Lay it out for us, Joe. Where is it right now?
2: So I think there's three things that you can kind of break this down. And the first would obviously be the stadium itself. They broke ground. It's on the site where Hollywood Park used to be. If, uh, If people know the LA area well, right south of the forum where the Lakers used to play. So a great area to have you know, a central hub for a professional sports franchise. And mm-hmm. they're targeting the 2019 season to open it. They've already secured uh, Super Bowl 55 in uh, early 2021. It's part of the Olympic bid package for Los Angeles. They're working to get, you know, college football playoffs there and uh, March Madness college men's basketball tournaments there, those kind of things. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is that it's really a campus uh, for the NFL, you've got a stadium, you've got performing arts venues, you've got what's going to be an NFL Network satellite uh, studio, and Cronky really wants to use this as kind of a trampoline to other markets, to Asia, uh, uh, you know, beyond Asia into Europe, and, and really use the, the reach that Los Angeles has as a market to help uh, export not just the Rams, but the NFL. You saw that a couple weeks ago when the Rams went to London before the bye week. They went to London directly from their previous game against the Detroit Lions. The New York Giants stayed at home in New York and practiced all week. So the Rams were out there as a brand ambassador, not just for the franchise, but for the league as a whole.
0: Pretty fascinating circumstance. Joe, as always, we want to thank you for the visit. Continued success with turf show times, and we'll look forward to catching up with you down the road.
2: Anytime, Bill. I look forward to it. Thanks.
0: We're going to come back with more of Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation Radio.
1: How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. I don't know if
0: the San Francisco 49ers are having the best year, and perhaps the timing isn't the best, but boy, we have a great story to tell you. And this one reaches back into the tremendous History of the 49ers and the legendary stadium they played in for years, Kizar Stadium. Some of the great moments in sports have taken place there. And Martin Jacobs recently penned a book called San Francisco 49ers Legends The Golden Age of Pro Football. Martin, welcome to the program. And I know your roots are pretty deep on this thing. This truly is a late of love for you. Explain why you wrote the book.
3: Well, I wrote the book because I wanted to share uh, the experiences that I had. I I started off at nine years old. Uh, That was my first game. And uh, my dad took me to the game and uh, we sat in the end zone. I think I had a 50 cent ticket. And uh, I, I was pretty bored at the game, watching the seagulls fly around and picking up hot dog wrappers and and just watching the nice green grass and a bunch of players running around in different directions. But my dad gave me some binoculars, and he said, focus on number 39. Now, 39 was Hugh McElhaney, a Hall of Famer for the 49ers. Well, I got so enthused watching him run and turn and cut and, and, and swivel, and he ended up running 40 yards for a touchdown. Well, from that moment on, I became a 49er fan and uh it started off with uh clippings from newspapers and collecting programs and uh, but it was from 9 years old on i've been a fan of the uh, 49ers and Kezar Stadium has been my second home only about a half a mile from the stadiums where i grew up
0: The first thing that I think of when I think of Keysar Stadium is the unique views of San Francisco that this offers. This stadium is located on the southeast edge of Golden Gate Park. Tell us about the magnificent views from that stadium. Oh,
3: well, you got Golden Gate Park. It's right at the end of Golden Gate Park. You can see uh, somewhat of the Golden Gate Bridge and you had the, the 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 climate change too you had the feeling of sunshine in the morning with the fog rolling in in the afternoon and sometimes the players were blinded by the sun and the birds came the the seagulls the pigeons uh, it was just an all around experience that it's really hard to describe except unless you were uh, you were there at yeah. the time
0: This was a neighborhood experience for you, and you, as I understand it, worked there as a boy. I imagine you have a few souvenirs from your years.
3: Souvenirs. My first job was actually, my first job was at, I think I was about 11 years old. I started selling programs. And I worked with somebody there because at 11 you're really not. So I think you need a work. I think I needed a work permit, but I didn't get that till I was 15, I think. But I helped someone sell programs there and cushions. Cushions were a nickel, and programs were 25 cents. But I started vending about. Uh thirteen years old, started with peanuts popcorn uh cracker jacks uh, and then I worked my way up to soda and eventually uh hot dogs and that lasted about thirteen years. so I got to meet the players I'd be there at nine in the morning, meet the players and get autographs and took my bubblegum cards there, and then my collection started when I was like about ten or eleven. And to this day, I'm still collecting 49er memorabilia from the 40s and the 50s.
0: So it really is the combination of two great loves of your life. It sounds like to me the 49ers, obviously, who you followed from a very early age, and it seems to me that Kezar Stadium increased that bond that you've had uh, going. Well, you know,
3: back. you know, Keysar is indescribable. In fact, the, the thing that the that the fans are missing today going to a 49er game is we could go on the field and after the game, talk to the players, walk with them to the locker room. And I remember one game in particular that stands out to me. See, I was able to get onto the field at halftime, which normally the the patrons or the paid public could not do. But I had an uncle who was a security guard on the field. So when the two-minute warning came to the bench, he would turn his back and I would run onto the bench. So that was a a set-up play for me. So when I was on the bench, I collected the chin straps a couple of bloody towels a lot of different kinds of memorabilia and so it it, it became a a a procedure that I did each game and That was my life.
0: Martin, talk about some of your favorite players from those years. Obviously, that was the showcase in the area for some of the best football talent that existed. And tell us about some of the players you remember. Well,
3: my favorite player, of course, was Hugh McElhaney, number 39 because of his open field running. But then you had Wyatt Tittle, who was our star quarterback. And the thing about Tittle is, when Tittle left the 49ers after 1960, the 49ers considered him maybe too old or washed up. He went to the New York Giants and led the New York Giants to three championships. So Tittle's greatest years was with the Giants, but he was a 49er in my heart from 1952 to 1960. Then you had Joe the Jet Perry. To me, he was a marvelous runner, straight-ahead runner, but he had some jukes that just broke away, and he made a lot of long runs. So we had a million-dollar backfield with Joe Perry, Y Tittle, and Hugh McElhaney, and another runner named John Henry Johnson. He only played with us uh, three years, and then he, uh, Johnson went on to the Pittsburgh Steelers and ended up in the Hall of Fame. So all four backfield men from the nineteen 19- 54 to 1956 team are in the Hall of Fame, and there's no other team that has that accomplishment.
0: Martin, we associate Keysar Stadium almost exclusively with the San Francisco 49ers, but in actuality, the Oakland Raiders actually did play in there themselves for a period of time. Unpack that for us, if you will.
3: Yeah, they they played in Keysar. while they were? I I think they played at Keysar when they were having their new stadium built. I know they played there in 1960 and 61, but uh, this the crowds were sparse because it was the Oakland Raiders. But they did use Keysar as well as a lot of college teams, University of San Francisco, Saint Mary's. But was neat is Kizar had a tunnel. When the players came out of the tunnel, see their locker rooms were down below in a separate building. It wasn't in Keysar Stadium itself. But to get to the stadium they had to walk through about a oh a three hundred, two hundred yard tunnel and it was all dirt inside and it was dark. And a lot of the forty ers used to say they used to kick if they would come first, they would kick up the dirt so the visiting team would have It'd be hard to see, and but uh, that was kind of an experience going from the through the from the locker room through the tunnel and onto the stadium.
0: It's just great to share this and talk about it, Martin Jacobs, our guest. Martin, thank you very much for the visit. We wish you well, and let's sell a million copies of that book of yours. Thank you
3: very much.
0: A pleasure. Martin Jacobs, our guest, and uh, his wonderful book, San Francisco 49ers Legends, The Golden Age of Pro Football. Now, when we return, Mark Medorin will join us. We'll talk shop. That is next, right here on SB Nation
1: Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need.
0: Time to talk shop once again. We examine this week's stadium headlines. We'll go to the water cooler where Mark Medorin, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website, is standing by. And if you don't already know it, let's remind you that Stadiums USA is the preeminent source for stadium news and information. You can listen to our podcasts of each program, Test your stadium knowledge at our quiz site. Everything is available at stadiumsusa.com. And one of the stories, Mark, which they will see there, is not good for San Diego regarding efforts to keep the Chargers in town. Rumors running rampant that the team could be headed to L.A. Mayor Kevin Falconer of the city of San Diego sat down with Chargers officials this week. Anything noteworthy there, Mark, regarding stadium talk?
4: I really don't think so. The tone in San Diego is definitely different than it was before the election. The voters sent a strong message to the Chargers with a poor showing of only 43% of the votes to increase the taxes on a hotel tax that doesn't even affect the residents. Here's the big issues. The Chargers have one-year option to become tenants at the new Cronky World Stadium in Englewood, which is outside of L.A. That option expires in about a month, in the middle of January. It seems near certain that the Chargers will be moving to L.A. to share Kroenke World. Which brings up some other potential questions. L.A. had no NFL football team for 20 years when the Raiders left town and returned to Oakland, and they did that because of lack of support in Los Angeles. Now, years later. Can the LA market really support two NFL teams? I really wonder about that. So it's a really interesting scenario. And you'll have to stay tuned to Stadiums USA for the continuing daily saga, Stadiums of Our Lives.
0: Boy, are you right about that. You know, San Diego today, more than perhaps any other city in the country, is the city with no facilities. They've failed twice with NBA basketball and pro basketball in general. They had no facility for it. They couldn't recruit an NHL team there if their lives depended on it. No facility other than baseball there's virtually nothing there how can they hope to build a professional sports environment with what they have
4: i really don't know but i know mayor falconer is very unhappy to see the chargers leave town but there's no way he can fix this in a couple of weeks they've had 15 years mm-hmm. uh, uh owner spanos has been very very um, patient about trying to get this done it hasn't been done and there's no other options left for him except to, I think, accept the offer to move down the road. The league has already approved it, and so I think that's his only option left. Mark, we've reported on universities beginning to
0: sell alcohol at stadiums and arenas. We got in on this really very early in the life of this show. Numbers are now coming out on beer sales. What are we seeing here?
4: Well, the numbers look interesting. Ohio State reports. Revenue from beer sales totaled $1.1 million for the entire season. By contrast, the University of Texas at Austin reported sales the same, $1.1 million. That was only through the first two home games of the year. <laughs> so they're doing a lot better job at Texas moving the alcohol into the stands. But you have to remember at Texas that they sell both hard liquor and wine, and they only sell beer at Ohio State. The University of Minnesota sold 830,000 in beer and wine through their first four games this year. So, although Ohio State may have ranked 3rd in the uh, CFP rankings, they lag far behind in the alcohol <laughs> revenue. Uh, polls at this point so maybe they'll do a better job next year they'll get some some better drinkers on camp mark although he didn't
0: come out and say it mlb commissioner rob manfred intimated this week that he is not going to wait forever for the Rays to put a ballpark deal together in the Tampa-St. Pete area. I wonder if he's looking out west and seeing how long they twiddled their thumbs in San Diego. I don't think he wants to go through that. In his words, did he issue a
4: warning shot to the Rays or to the people in that area? His comment was that there's going to be some action taken, and if it's not by the Rays... It's going to be by MLB. He did not set any firm deadlines, but he implied that forced relocation is possible under MLB rules. He also commented that a new facility needs to be appropriately located within the Basang Pete Market. I would say, as a knowledgeable observer of this area, I would have to agree. The ballpark is in a bad location. It's a difficult place to reach. It's across the bay from Tampa. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's tough on Orlando residents to get to the ballpark at all. And there's a big market of Orlando people, both residents and visitors, that would like to get to the ballpark more often. If they move that facility to a more convenient Tampa location on the other side of town, they have a great chance of success. But they have to remember that the facility is Florida. And Florida baseball in the summer, you have to make some provisions for the fans. That's probably going to have to be a retractable dome facility. Otherwise, it's it's near impossible to sit out there in the heat. And you have to remember, it rains every day in Florida, so you have to be able to cover that field.
0: Time to roll back the clock, Mark. Take a look at some important dates in stadium and ballpark history. What do you have for us this week?
4: Well, this week in 1936, the American League gives the okay for teams to begin playing nighttime baseball. One of the first teams to install lights at their ballpark is the St. Louis Browns. By 1940, Sportsman's Park would feature night baseball. 1960, the L.A. Angels signed a four-year lease for the use of Dodger Stadium. In their first year of existence, you can remember the Angels played at the L.A. Wrigley Field. In 1965, they would head south and play in their new ballpark, Anaheim Stadium. And this date in 1983, in the last pro football game at Shea Stadium, the Steelers beat the Jets 34-7. Following the game, fans took seats and pieces of the scoreboard, home for souvenirs. The next year, the Jets would join the Giants in the Meadowlands. So, Bill, before we get out of here, it's time for Stadium Trivia. And here's this week's Stadium Trivia question from stadiumsusa.com. All right. The New York football Giants have a long and storied history. They've played in a number of different stadiums throughout the years. In which stadium have the Giants never played a home game? Number one, Shea Stadium. Number two, the Yale Bowl. Number three, Ebbets Field. And number four, the Polo Grounds.
0: Very good. The Yale Bowl, of course, is the ringer in there. So that's a yes. They play. I don't remember how they did, but they must have played in there. That's a ringer. That's the one that's supposed to get me confused there. I think it was Ebbets Field.
4: You are correct. Oh, yes. Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, home of the Dodgers. (laughs) They had never played there, but they did play in the polo grounds. Oh, yeah. Home of the Giants, so. And they played in Shea Stadium, home of the Mets. So they did use a lot of baseball facilities. Oh, man. That is correct this week. Congratulations.
0: Yeah, right. Well, it's always good to get something right every once in a while, Mark. Hang in there. Have fun. We'll see you next week.
4: Take care, Bill. Enjoy the weekend.
0: Now, coming up, when you go to see your favorite team play in their home stadium 60% of the time, they will win. We examine the science of the home field advantage. That is next. Next here on SB Nation Radio. fascinating topic in sports is the so-called home field advantage. We all know about it, but really, what is it and what are the characteristics that help to make it? How do stadiums play into it? We're going to talk about that with Jeremy Jamison, Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Rochester, and he has written extensively on this topic. It's been a source of fascination for him. Jeremy, it's great to visit with you, and you really Got a nice topic here, I think. Have you had a lot of fun with it?
5: Yeah, it's been a nice melding of my interest in both science and in sports, and um, a lot of the research coming out of social psychology right now deals with performance situations, and so a lot of things athletes are experiencing when they're playing, kind of the things we study as psychologists, and so it's a nice topic to get into.
0: Certainly, the home field advantage is there. I've observed it as a broadcaster for many, many years. I've uh, observed many unusual and different twists to it. Can you give us a description in clinical terms of what that advantage actually boils down to? What are the components that make it up?
5: So just very quickly, um, home teams or players playing on a home surface or court or field, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. they'll win about 60% of the time. So it is a very stable, very real effect,
3: mm-hmm.
5: and what it is, is it's rooted in lots of different factors. We mentioned stage, we mentioned the place you're playing at, like the actual place matters. Um, it's not just the players, it's not just the fans, it's not just the rest. I mean, those are psychological processes, those are interpersonal processes and interpersonal processes. But there's also physical effects, too, of the actual stadiums. And I find that probably for this show, that's probably really, really interesting. Um, a good example of this is the old the old Boston Garden. So Before they tore down the old garden in Boston, the hockey team, the Boston Bruins, would specifically recruit players who were a little bit bigger, maybe a little bit more physical than other teams because their ice surface was smaller. And so they have smaller ice surface. It's easier to get to other players. Um, you don't need as much speed. You need more size in that they were actually tailoring their recruitment based on the stadium they played in. So you have effects like that. You see this also currently with, I mean, you can, couldn't tell, I'm a big Boston fan, uh, the Red <laughs> Sox play in Fenway Park, and so they'll get guys who can kind of use, use the monster, use the wall, and kind of go off this field
0: there. How about the fans themselves, the nature of the support that the fans give? We all know great cities that have support. Boston is one of them. Here in Chicago, certainly the fans are very well known for having a rabid degree of support for their sports. How does that factor into it?
5: Yeah, I mean, the fans are introducing, um, I mean, in psychology terms, it's like a social value of pressure. And the athletes are playing a game and they're getting immediate feedback about whether their performance is positive or negative. And if you're an away player, you're playing at somebody else's stadium or somebody else's court. You do something, you've maybe made a mistake, and the fans start cheering. That's kind of disconcerting for people. People don't like that. <laughs> um, and so people tend, when they're playing at these away stadiums, they, they try to avoid making mistakes. And the difference between trying to avoid making a mistake and trying to succeed, those are very different motivational orientations. mm mm-hmm. And so a lot of psychologists are thinking that this might be one of the root sources of home effects is differences in avoidance motivation and approach motivation. So think about approach motivation is a very simple term as like basically trying to win. Avoidance motivation be trying not to lose or trying not to do something that would lead you to lose. In sports, there's an excellent study by C.N. Bylock at the University of Chicago, and she was studying a process called stereotype threat. I mean, that's kind of tangential for this topic right now, but what she did is she had male golfers come into the lab, and she told these golfers that, hey, female golfers are much better putters than males are. Hmm. And these were male golfers who were on the golf team at Chicago, and they were very, very, very good golfers. And they, they hear this information, they're like, oh no, like I kind of I need, I need to defend my group now and, and try to do as well as possible. But what they tried to do is they tried not to screw up. And so by trying not to screw up, what happened is that they broke down the proceduralization of the putting stroke. So instead of naturally going through their putting movements, they tried to execute each step really, really well. If you try to execute each step really, really well, you don't smoothly execute the movement. And you see the same thing happen with baseball swings, with with swings, not just putting strokes, with a full golf swing too. And this is why athletes practice. Like, they practice, they spend hours and hours and hours proceduralizing their movements. They become automatic. If you have to pay attention to a movement, it's not proceduralized anymore. And so all the training kind of goes out the window, and people that's when people screw up. That's what people, what they call it, they call it choke. And so Sian has an excellent book out called Choke on this specific topic and this specific process, but um, it's very closely related to why different athletes have formed differently in um, different settings and different
0: environments. Jeremy, I've seen situations, both college and pro, where a team will struggle at home. And then they'll get out on the road, and the coach will actually look forward to getting them out on the road and away from the home environment. And especially if it's a longer trip, they it seems as if some coaches think a team can solidify more on the road because they're together so much uh, over a period of time. Can you speak to that? Have you found that to be kind of an issue that goes crosswise to what we would think here?
5: Yeah, I in any specific studies have actually looked at this, but um, I mean, recently the New England Patriots were playing a, an away game at Green Bay and then they tried to travel west to go to San Diego, and Bill Belichick kept the team in California for the whole week rather than going back to New England first and then flying back to the coast. And the idea was that, yeah, the one you're limiting travel demands on the players, and you allow the players spend a lot of time together to bond. The relationship between members of a team is really important. I mean, if you're playing not just for you and your own salary and your own stat, but you're playing for the guy next to you, that's going to matter. And so, of course, it's going to impact performance. And, and getting out on the road and getting to the with of players can be really, really important. I mean, if you were to give any coach the option, though, of playing one game at home or away, I'm sure 90% of them will choose playing game at home.
0: Jeremy, it's a fascinating topic, no question. We all think about it. We all hear it. We all take it for granted. We know it's there. It's kind of nice to take a deep dive into it and find out what it's actually all about. Yeah, thanks much for having me. It is a pleasure. Jeremy Jamison, Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Rochester. That's our program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadiums USA on Blog Talk Radio.